This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 128, part two, Suffering. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for coming back this week. If you missed the first part of my conversation with Matt Basford and Keith Stonehart, please do yourself a favor and check it out. We covered the role suffering has played in their own lives and the lessons they have drawn from it. We begin the second part by discussing the mostly well-intentioned doctors who killed off my favorite president. We close with advice on how we can exercise reasonable preparation without living in fear. Let's start with what I've been reading. I've been reading Destiny of the Republic, a book focusing on the assassination of my new favorite president, James Abram Garfield. It's generally said that Garfield was killed by Charles Guiteau. In truth, Garfield was killed by his doctors. Warnings went out from numerous doctors who knew of Joseph Lister's advancements in sanitation, but older heads chose to hold to the old paths. Months later, Garfield finally succumbed to infection. Ignorance kills. And good motives don't change that. What are some ways that well-intentioned people make a bad situation worse? And how have you responded? There have been several instances in my life where I know people meant well, but the result was bad. And it's, it's hard not to have an attitude that says thanks, but no thanks. It's also hard to keep in perspective that their motive was not evil. Those are the times, I think, where I have really found myself struggling to extend grace I think Christians are much better at dealing with suffering when the sufferer is not in some way responsible. You know, in in my case, uh, the the fact that I have ALS is due to my brilliant choice of mothers. This is written in every cell of my DNA that this was going to happen to me. People can deal with that. You know, here is this good guy who has just been struck down through absolutely no fault of his own. and, And so I'm going to be supportive and compassionate. But on the other hand, when you're dealing with somebody who has made all kinds of mistakes and gotten themselves in all kinds of disasters to reach the point where they're suffering, that's the sort of thing I think that that tempts us to to drag out our pedestals and start preaching down at that person from the pedestal. And that's when you get help that is probably well-intentioned, but is not actually helpful at all. It can sound more egotistical than it is intended. It yeah. may be more in- egotistical than we realize. It's a difficult line for us to walk in that situation. You know, my experience is that very rarely do people need to be told what they're doing wrong mm. because they know it and they're ashamed of it. Yeah. And I, I suspect that back in your atheist days, Keith, that you 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 felt deep shame uh, about yourself and about the things that you had done. Yeah. But you just didn't know what to do with it. Yes. I, I've learned this the hard way. You know, I, I've been much more condemnatory than I should have been at, uh, sometimes. But these days, if you're just having a conversation with somebody, you know, hey, how are you doing? And you know, they, they know that you're a preacher. This is especially true with struggling Christians. Then all this stuff will just come spilling out. You don't have yeah. to convict them because they have already convicted themselves. Yeah. It is people like that who, if you offer them the hope of grace, will seize upon it. 
Yeah. And how beautiful it is to be, to be washed clean, to get to start over. Absolutely. My grandpa used to say, uh, and I, I use this a lot in sermons and, and that whatnot, but he said, you never tell a man he's sunburned. He knows, <laughs> you know, inevitably, if you're sunburned, someone comes up and goes, wow, you are really sunburned. And you're like, I know, <laughs> I feel it. Um, and so rather than pointing out the obvious, I think sometimes what we need to offer is aloe. Let me get your feelings on the expression. And I've heard this a hundred times. I know just how you feel. I know just what you're going through. Is that received well or is that received poorly? So I've had good and bad experiences with both. We talk about Job and his three friends, and we often just focus on when they turned on him. But in the very beginning, what did they do? They went and they just sat with him. And I think there's there's something very powerful about just being with someone in that moment and identifying. And, and I'll, I've also had the opportunity to go and sit with someone and say, man, I understand this. But at the same time, I've had people say, I, listen, I know exactly what you feel. And the only thought that comes through my mind is like, how could you? How could you know exactly what I feel right now? You know, whenever my wife was diagnosed with cancer last year, in some sense, the last thing you want to hear is everything's going to be fine. Because it doesn't feel that way right now. And so it comes across as kind of snarky, you know, to say, listen, you shouldn't worry about this. I'm like, yes, I should. She's got cancer. But in the same sense, I I had people come and say, listen, you're going to get through this. And that made a difference as opposed to someone saying, listen, I've been through this. I know what I'm talking about. Listen to me. Well-meaning people sometimes don't mean to inflict harm. They're well-meaning. They really want to try to help, but it doesn't always come across like that. And so I think we just have to be graceful and gracious with each other. Maybe the, the difference that you're pinpointing is the question of whether somebody is willing to sit with you in your suffering or whether they're trying to dismiss your suffering. Saying, oh, don't worry, you're going to be fine. That's saying, you know, you're making a much bigger deal out of this than you should because really this is nothing. Yeah. But when we do have people who say, you know, I have been through this experience that is like yours. I lost a child in the same way that you did. I found that powerfully helpful, at least in part because generally people who have lost children don't dismiss that as a a, a trivial experience. Right. And uh, although there was one lady who told my wife, it's okay, you'll have others, which was, was not helpful. And some people, I think, don't realize how self-centered they are. They're trying to be sympathetic. But, you know, the expression, they make it all about them in our right minds. And we're not always in our right minds when we're suffering. But in our right minds, I think we can tell the difference between someone who is reaching out to us and offering us their heart versus someone who suddenly is put in a position of expertise and wants to show off a little bit. I think that generally with a, with a straight mind, we can tell the difference between the two. I'm not sure exactly how much difference that makes, because if you have a straight mind, then you're able to filter that out. Right. So they're a jerk. Frankly, I knew they were a jerk two years ago. I don't need any information on that. I already have that. So what? We're moving on. I could deal with it two years ago. I'm dealing with it now. It's, it's fine. We would wish that we would find a better way to sympathize. And that's why I bring this up because I listened to what 
you two are telling me here, and I don't have a comparable story. You know, I've suffered in my way, like we all do, but I find myself very much on the outside of this kind of experience, wanting to help and feeling completely inadequate in this situation because we fall back on trite sayings like, I'm here for you. Let me know what there is I can do. We have our prayers. And it seems so worthless in the moment. Is saying those trite sayings, is that helpful at all? When we were in that situation, the last thing I wanted was to have to give people directions. Hey, what can we do? Can you cure cancer? Yeah. Because that's really what I, what I need, you know. But what I found that helped me the most, I mean, and, and this is this is only from my experience, can I say this, to at least express the fact that you're not alone. I think at the core of every situation like this, no one wants to be alone. Terry Francis called me one morning. And, you know, I hear the phone's ringing. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, oh, man, I might have to tell someone what to do, you know. And when I, I said, hey, man. And he said, hey, dude. He goes, uh, you got a minute? I just wanted to pray with you. And I said, yeah. And he just launched into a prayer. That was it. And then at the end, he says, I love you, dude. See you later. Click. Completely changed my perspective on what I needed anyway, because I don't know that I knew until then. And I was like, that's all I need, man. I need people to pray. I need her name to go before the father as often as possible. And that's what brought me true comfort. A lot of times people are wanting to help us. So they're like, well, how's she doing? Do you guys need anything? I mean, and from the best place possible saying, I want to help, but it's, it's work and you're having to answer and give directives. And, you know, for us in that situation, anyway, it was really hard to do that. But when Terry called up and just prayed with me, it was amazing how much different the rest of that day went. And I would say probably the rest of the period while we were dealing with it. My experiences are similar. You know, it mattered a lot when somebody who had lost a child came to me and said, I've been through this. I know how you feel right now. I'm praying for you is never unwelcome, especially when people actually take the time to pray with you. That's wonderful. Saying I'm here for you, I think is also meaningful because it it reminds me that there are all these people who love me, who are going through this with me. That's powerful. Probably the times that have been most meaningful to me have been when somebody stops some public gathering or assembly and let a prayer just for me. That's awesome. Yeah. But, you know, as for what can I do? You're absolutely right. That that comes from a great place. That's people who are trying to fix it and make it better. Yeah. Uh, And I I completely understand why they would, because I myself am a fixer. I want to make everybody's lives better, but it kind of has a pop quiz effect. Okay. They've put me on the spot. What do I have to come up with for them to do so so they can feel better? Right. The time is going to come when my family and I are likely to need a lot of help, but we're, we're not there yet. And so my sort of stock answer there has become... We really appreciate the offer. We'll we'll let you know when the time comes. This is what I've been playing. Been playing Galaxy Trucker. 
you build a spaceship out of spare parts as quickly as you can, and then you set out to make your fortune, taking bits of whatnot to the deep reaches of space. You can work slowly, building the perfect ship and missing out on the best opportunities, or you can work quickly and run the risk of having your ship fall apart. Life has its perils, and being prepared ahead of time certainly helps. But if we spend every moment bracing for impact, we wind up not setting our foot on the road at all. Is there a way we can prepare for hardship without giving in to fear? I love it when Jesus sends out the 72. I believe he tells them to be harmless as dove, but wise as serpents. The idea of the Boy Scouts, always be prepared. If I am prepared to act, then I don't react. When you're a kid and you go to the doctor and they hit your knee with the hammer and it flies up, that's a reaction. And it's the reaction is the negative response to the positive hit. And if we go through life reacting to everything and we haven't really given any thought or preparation to acting when something arises, our response, the majority of the time has a tendency to be negative. You know, that if I haven't given thought to how I'm going to respond, if I'm out somewhere and someone says, Hey man, do you want a beer? My initial response would be to get angry about, don't you know what, what I've deal with, you know, and, 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 and to respond in this angrily way, or I can just say, no, thank you. You know, a lot of that is going to be dependent on how I've prepared myself. What answer will I give? My perspective on this is a little bit different because I had a lot more warning in one instance than I did in the other. I mean, my, yeah. my daughter being stillborn was completely unexpected. Just boom, here you are. The ALS is very different. My mother died from ALS. My uncle died from ALS. When my mother died, because my uncle died first, when my mother died, I realized, you know, I may well have a problem here. And you know, that, that was about 10 years ago. And so there is a sense in which I have been preparing, certainly financially, but in in other ways as well for this to happen. I mean, I've been telling people for years, it's likely that I'm not going to live long enough to draw social security. And they thought I was being dramatic, but I, I knew I wasn't being dramatic. That sounds good, but I think in a lot of ways it was harmful because when I started getting symptomatic, because this was something that I had worried about and feared for so long, I really struggled to deal with that. I I could not be honest about what those symptoms meant. And all the, the mental conflict there really produced all sorts of anxiety and depression in me to a, a debilitating extent. I mean, arguably, No, it's not arguable. I'm in a better place mentally with a terminal diagnosis than I was when I was just afraid of a terminal diagnosis. So, you know, in a worldly sense, I don't know that preparation is really all that useful. I mean, in in a lot of ways, my family and I are better prepared because I had that warning, but it was it was very difficult in other ways. The best preparation in both cases was simply that of trying to develop spiritually, where you study the Bible, you know the Bible, and you find in the moment that without having realized it, you are equipped to deal with this because the scriptures have equipped you. These days, I am reading 2 Corinthians 4 through 6 in a whole new light. 
there is stuff there where it's talking about your your outward body decaying but your inward man being renewed day by day i don't know that i really understood what that meant until now i think it just shows the great wisdom of god in that he is giving you the tools you need to deal with anything in your life except you have to familiarize yourself with those tools beforehand There's a whole scriptural narrative into which my situation right now fits very neatly. And I had no idea that that would be true. Once you're in that situation, then you see what you have in the Word, and you see what you have in your relationship with God. Well, they say that about great art. You watch the people who watch the art, and they always look kind of silly, right? Because they come at it, and they look at it straightforward and kind of look at the Picasso, just face on. And they had this really studious look on their face. And then they move like six feet to the left and look again and they look again and, and then they, they move over here. And, and just from these different perspectives, I'm busy reading a book on Picasso right now. So that's kind of where my head is. And the people who know art say that it really makes a difference. The perspective that you're coming from, regardless of the style of art, gives you a, a different insight into something that has not changed necessarily, something that is the same. And that's what suffering will do or blessings or, or what have age, same thing, looking at the same passage, looking at the same set of circumstances from the sufferer rather than the onlooker or the ignorant person or whatever. It brings new light to things, including scripture, like you're mm-hmm. saying there. The outward man is suffering. The inner man is being renewed day by day. The implication seems to be that what happens to the outer man affects the inner man. That's why he's putting the pairing together there. That doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's no point in calling it a good thing or a bad thing. It's just the way that it is. The important thing is that whatever happens to the outer man or doesn't happen, we take this as an opportunity to draw closer to God. We, We renew the inner man because we do have control over that. God may or may not affect our outward circumstances, but we have complete control over the attitude that we take toward these things. It doesn't feel like we do in the moment, but you can own your circumstances. You can own your your situation in life and say, I'm going to take this and I'm going to point it toward God. And prayers come up prominently in the discussion already. That's the obvious way to do this, your own prayer, the prayers of others. But Fundamentally, it's it's just a mental state, isn't it? I'm going to go to God with this. I'm going to cast all my anxiety on the Lord because he cares for me and trust that this is going to work something in my life or in my family's life or in the life of somebody else. Yeah, and I, I think it's especially the latter because when it comes to suffering, I do not believe that there is anything out there in, in, in any religion, in, in any philosophy that better equips you to deal with suffering than the Bible does, because the Bible's theology of suffering is so deep and is so profound, and the answers are so good. That means that if you know your Bible, then you also know how to suffer. That's one of the things that I I, I try to emphasize, especially in working with young people. The Bible teaches us how to suffer. All the major stories, Noah suffered. Abraham suffered, Jacob suffered, all the way through, David suffered. And, and, and it culminates with Jesus suffering, all his disciples suffering and the deaths that they died. And the one strand that runs through all of it is hope. 
and not a hope that things are going to change, not a hope that things are going to get better because that's the hope that our neighbors in the world have. Right. If they, and that's the way they see our hope. How many times have we been ridiculed for praying and praying and praying and nothing changed? Well, you're, you know, fat lot of good you're praying did. Well, and maybe you know, we're, we don't pray like we ought to sometimes. Maybe there's some legitimate failing there, and maybe some people's faith is going to be shaken because they didn't get what they were praying for. But what we should be doing when we're praying in hope is praying that God works something in us, that some good can be accomplished, that I can be drawn closer to God through all of this. And ultimately, of course, the one hope of Ephesians chapter four, our hope of heaven, that we will endure through this life and find our way home. It's so easy to get caught up in, if I can just make it one more day, maybe tomorrow will be better. And maybe it will. And if it is, then thank God that it got better. And if it's not, will God let me down again? Okay, maybe tomorrow. That's not the kind of hope that he holds out for us here. There are plenty of examples in the text. Abraham may be the, the most obvious example. Someone whose hope was never going to be realized. And he knew that in the fullest sense, at least. He was never going to get what he was promised, and he knew that, and he lived his life anyway. When our hope is beyond the Jordan, when our hope is beyond this life, that should empower us to separate our attitude from our circumstances. That that should empower us to not live for a better day here, but for a better day there, and for more purpose here, for more opportunity here, for more faith here and building up that connection to God that this life is supposed to be all about. I think about the heroes of faith from Hebrews 11. None of those men saw the promises fulfilled, that Jesus was not only the fulfillment, but the fulfiller of those promises, that it all culminated with him. So they never got to see that. And yet they believed anyway, not seeing those promises fulfilled, but believing that they would be. My experience there, how cracks with what you're saying, there are all kinds of people praying for my healing. And I, I, I deeply appreciate that. But I find that what I am most concerned about is that throughout this, that I will continue to live courageously and that I will be able to accomplish the things that God wants me to do. And I, I don't know what that is, but I, I'm, I'm trying to find it. It reminds me of the way the apostles dealt with it when the first time they appeared before the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin told them to you know, go and don't talk about Jesus anymore. And they come back and they turn to Psalm 2 and they pray to God involving Psalm 2 and they ask for boldness. That may be the most biblical response is not asking for the suffering to be taken away, but asking for boldness to continue to serve God through it. I believe that God can cure my ALS right now if he so chose. And you know that there are a handful of people who have had ALS just spontaneously go away. But I don't know that that's what God will do. And I don't feel like that's where I should be putting my hope because God hasn't promised me that he should, that that's nothing more than my desire. 
one of the things that I started including in my prayers, God, if you could change the situation, change it. But if not, change me, change how I look at it, change where, where my trust is, change where my, my, my faith is. If I can't change the world, change mine. That's an excellent perspective that you just mentioned, Matt. Yeah, and I, I really like your expression of, a, of that idea, too. That's very elegant. I've been called a lot of things, but elegance never one of them. <laughs> what I keep hearing from everybody involved here is that preparing for suffering is more or less preparing for life. When we're putting ourselves in God's hands and we know that bad times are out there, the solution is, is not necessarily to have a particular set of armor, to have a particular set of friends or any such thing as that. It's to have faith to be in the habit of turning things over to God, be prepared to act like a Christian, first of all, and then you're prepared to act like a Christian in adverse circumstances. Something that is also very valuable is doing your best to encourage deep relationships in your life with brethren, because those are the people who will help sustain you when things get rough. They've been powerfully helpful in all of the times in my life when I've encountered suffering. I think about the principle associated with counting the cost. The way we train our kids to be adults is that we give them little doses to get them used to the idea that life is going to get harder. There's an idea in counting the cost as Christians, where we recognize that the Christian life is not a pain-free life, that when I give my life to Christ and my sins are forgiven, that burden's taken away. But there might still be consequences I have to deal with. And as a Christian, sometimes my faith will require things of me that that are going to hurt me uh, or or, or they're going to hurt me, maybe not physically, but but they might hurt me financially. I might have to quit a job because the company wants me to do something unethical or I might have to to lose a group of friends. I think that the Bible gives us all we need in that, that that the scriptures, especially uh, looking at Jeremiah's life and looking at limitations. We see a lot of that. I'm not the first one to deal with this. And I definitely won't be the last. Yeah, I I think especially for preachers, uh, Jeremiah is useful because, you know, all of us get discouraged with how our work is going and the the country just looks like it's going to hell by the quickest road and all of this other stuff. Yeah. And well, you know, maybe my work is difficult. My work is not so difficult as Jeremiah's work. Mm. And if he could prosper and find success in that, and he can glorify God in that, then I can surely glorify God where I am. In the, the parenting episode that I did with Ricky Jenkins and Phil Robertson, we talked about suffering some and, and the attitude that some parents have that their job is to eliminate or as close as you can to eliminate the suffering in their children's lives. And I think that is a profound mistake. I, I think that has disaster written all over it. I don't want my child to suffer any more than anybody else does, but it's not my job to give them a pain-free life. It's my job to turn them into a functional adult, and especially my job in Jesus to turn them into a functional Christian. And me lying to them and saying, you can have a pain-free existence in the world, let alone a pain-free existence in Christ, is nonsense. It's not going to help anybody. Yes, It's not my job to to protect them from suffering, I I would like to mitigate their suffering somewhat. But there is a way that we can teach children about suffering at a very early age. 
you know, I was teaching my kids about life's not fair in first grade. Life is painful ever since the fall. That's, that's the way it is. We don't rejoice in that necessarily, but we turn it for good. We turn it for God's purposes, for my family's purposes. And to, to some extent, as a parent, I think it's fair to say that I intentionally inflict suffering on my children. Neither one of them enjoys weeding the front flower bed. I could do it much more quickly than they can do it. It would be much less painful for me if I did it myself instead of making them do it. And yet, uh, every two weeks or so out to the front flower bed, they go. And for the next hour, I deal with a continual stream of complaints. Mm. (laughs) But That's your suffering. Yes. But I I think that is teaching them valuable lessons about what life is like, because sometimes you're going to have to go through stuff that you don't want to go through. And this is you learning how to deal with it. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.